Today's read, Midnight and the Meaning of Love by Sister Soldier, Part 2, Japan Story, Chapter 3, The Elephant. The orange sun saw me first. So bright it burned through the paper-thin curtains and cast colors onto the cream-colored walls, warm like a sauna. It woke me at 5 a.m., boasting that it had cheated me out of my morning prayer, which normally had my head pressed to the ground before dawn, especially on this first full day of the Ramadan fast. I took it as both a sign and a reminder that to win on this side of the world, I had to move faster, rise up earlier like their sun, think quicker, and adjust. I slid my room door open with ease. I glanced down the hall. There was no one out there. I grabbed my towel, washcloth, t-shirt, boxers, and bathroom bag, a black leather case filled with everything I needed. I walked all the way down to the only men's room servicing the first floor. Inside, there were five showers and five urinals and three toilets. Instead of the urinals being on the wall and positioned at waist height, their urinals were on the floor. It seemed like the Japanese felt closer to the floor, so they designed the urinals for shorter, smaller men. I took aim. After showering and dressing, I returned to my room and spread out my second towel onto the floor to serve as a prayer cloth. In the Asian heat, I made my prayer. At 6.15 a.m. in Tokyo, I continued my studies. I cracked open my book on Japanese culture, even by selecting just a few passages or pages. I believed I might stumble on something useful. The author of Peculiar People, The Japanese Way, even before beginning his book, provided a list. Ten things I am sure you don't know about the Japanese. I liked nonfiction writers who could get to the point in a reasonable amount of time, so I decided to concentrate on the list. One, the Japanese people believe that they are superior to all other people in the world. For 2,000 years, they did not even allow any foreigners to enter Japan, and they made it illegal for Japanese citizens to leave Japan and go anywhere else in the world. It doesn't matter who you are, European or African. It does not matter if you are also Asian as well, Korean, Chinese, Thai, Vietnamese, or even Indian. The only thing that matters to them is whether or not you are Japanese. Every non-Japanese is believed to be less or below them and is described as foreign or gaijin, which in Japanese means outside people. Two, the Japanese have the most complicated writing and language system in the world. They use three different forms of writing, hiragana, katakana, and kanji. Years ago, there were up to 10,000 kanji that students and citizens of Japan had to learn and perfect. Today, the average Japanese student must master hiragana, katakana, and 3,000 additional kanji letters. Students beginning from a young age 
spend 10 to 12 hours a day in school and after school and night school programs in their highly exhausting and competitive educational system. The Japanese use the fact that most foreigners consider their language impossible to master as evidence that the Japanese are superior. Three, the Japanese are very hard on one another. They do not believe in being or doing minimum or less than the most. They believe every Japanese citizen should strive to be excellent and work for the first place position every day and all the time. Every Japanese should be Ichiban, meaning number one. Four, the Japanese are obsessed with all Japanese people being the same and doing the same things. They believe that this is how harmony is maintained in a society. Therefore, when you enter a Japanese business or school or government office, all the employees and students are normally dressed exactly the same way. The workers and students look down on anyone who dares to break the harmony or the sameness. A person who dares to be different can suffer a lifetime of ridicule and isolation and loss. This practice is known as kata or the Japanese way. And the Japanese have learned a precise, uniform way of doing each and every task, including living life. 5. The Japanese do not know how to express themselves honestly. They repress their feelings intentionally because historically, the punishment they received for self-expression or for doing anything that was not approved or prescribed by authorities was severe and often cost them and their family members their lives. Even though today, the Japanese no longer live under an emperor or any type of oppressive government or authority, they still believe in speaking less, expressing less, appearing satisfied even when they are depressed and unhappy. They are suspicious of all foreigners and anyone who does the opposite, such as talk too much grab too much attention or burden other people with their problems. 6. The Japanese of today can only tolerate foreigners as long as you are a tourist on a short stay. They will be pleasant and polite and accommodating to this group because they will also earn money from this group through tourism and other business ventures. However, if foreigners try to remain in Japan beyond a short stay, they will experience a great and solid social and cultural isolation and they will eventually feel the full power of the Japanese law. Japanese immigration policy is one of the most unwelcoming exclusionary immigration policies in the world. 7. It is the responsibility of every Japanese to save face. This means that the Japanese must work overtime to look good and be good and be successful in every way down to the most minor details. They must be successful in conversation, business, education, family, and friendship. To be embarrassed is to be shamed. To be shamed is to lose face. To be embarrassed would be to not fit the Japanese formula, the Japanese way in all things. 
Each Japanese person will apply the formula to every other and pass judgment severely on anyone bringing embarrassment or shame onto their name, their family, their friends, or their business. If you are a foreigner and you are speaking to a Japanese, for example, in English, even if the Japanese person does not speak English, he will not admit that he does not understand you. To admit this would be to say that he does not know something. Even a simple matter like this will cause him to lose face. Therefore, a Japanese may choose not to speak to a foreigner at all and ignore him instead rather than experience embarrassment. They are more comfortable knowing that you cannot speak Japanese and that this is the real problem. Saving face is so important to the Japanese that a Japanese person would consider committing suicide as a reasonable option to cover up, prevent, or atone for a loss of status and loss of approval from his co-workers, peers, and neighbors. The Japanese historically have even had a procedure for how suicide should be carried out properly so as not to disturb or burden anyone else any further with their miserable life or even their death. 8. If a foreigner is successful in doing business with the Japanese, no matter how long the business alliance lasts, the Japanese will never accept that foreigner as one of us. You may take part in all business functions and business affairs, but you will never be welcomed to marry into their families, to attend their weddings, memorial services, or rituals. For a Japanese person to invite outsiders to such events would be considered a disruption of the harmony and the Japanese way. Today, the Japanese are so suspicious of foreigners that they have even become suspicious of full-blooded Japanese citizens who have traveled to other countries and resided there for long periods of time. They look at them as Japanese who have compromised their Japanese-ness. Japanese persons who marry outsiders or foreigners run a high risk of losing their family, friends, and respect. They become victims of itsame, a collective and powerful disapproval that leads to a solid ignoring of this person's existence. 9. Despite being a small island, Japan has dominated invaded, usurped, and degraded all its larger neighbors, including the overpopulated and massive mother of Asia, China. The Japanese had never lost a war until World War II when they were conquered by the Americans. Even after being conquered, bombed, and occupied, the Japanese worked so hard and so harmoniously with such precision and perfection that they rebuilt their country and brought their economy back to life and dominance in a short period of time. They are the third largest economy in the world today, and Tokyo is the third most expensive city for people to live in, in the entire world. 10. The Japanese do not believe in God. Their roots are in Confucian, Confucianism, Buddhism, and Shintoism. Today, there is no Japanese religion despite the effort of many groups and organizations, including Christian missionaries, to influence their nation. The Japanese believe in themselves, their relatives and ancestors. They believe in harmony, perfect manners at all costs, and even during a crisis. They believe in discipline and controlled organization. 
peace and law and order. They believe in money and hard work, but even when presented with the opportunity for great profit, they will not sacrifice or exchange the Japanese way of life. They believe that the Japanese method or process is the smartest and only method. If they lose business with outsiders who are unwilling to do it their way, they believe that they are smart enough to earn the business that was lost by some other means while maintaining their superiority and exclusivity. The list was mind-blowing to me. At first, it made me suspicious about the author and the author's intentions. Next, I felt forced to reread the list and separate each numbered item and pause and think about it and compare it to my few experiences with Akimi's Japanese family in America. Then, I had to circle the words that I didn't understand on the list and then look them up. On my second read, I picked out the things on the list that were similar to what I know about my own people, the Sudanese. There were a few cultural similarities, but there were definitely more differences. I had never thought of Akimi as an atheist. For a Muslim man to marry an atheist is haram, forbidden. She never felt like a non-believer to me. A woman with no God or faith or belief would feel cold and empty, I guessed. She would have no standards or boundaries, I figured. On further thought, it was impossible for me to look at my wife in relation to this list. It was also not possible for me to lump her in some big category like the Japanese. I could only look at my wife based on what I learned of her by watching and observing and interacting and feeling. I didn't know if this list was all true, but I knew that the list felt cold and empty. My wife felt warm and full of life and love and pure sweetness and talent like my Uma. In my and Akimi's marriage contract, I had gifted her a beautiful blue bound and hardcover holy Quran translated from Arabic to her Japanese language. I had it here in my duffel. I never got the chance to present it to her properly, which I'd intended to do right after her big art show at MoMA. I looked forward to her reading it slowly and learning it side by side with me as a help to her. I wanted her to embrace it because her soul had embraced Islam knowingly and not just because I told her to. Another thought occurred to me. The list did match my idea of Naoko Nakamura, my wife's father. At least it matched the profile that was slowly forming in my mind. I became certain that this was the reason Sensei gave these two books to me. As I reflected, Sensei had said that my wife was under tremendous pressure here in Japan. This list certainly helped me to understand why and what kind of isolation she might still be facing. It also created a deep curiosity in me. If these listed items had any truth, why would a girl like Akimi, raised in this way, leap over the carefully drawn, bold boundaries of her culture and into my arms, my heart, my life? At 8.25 a.m., I was lying on my back on my bed with the book opened and pressed on my face, thinking. When I pulled the book off, I checked the time and jumped up to make the morning call to Iwa Ikeda like I had promised to do. 
The hostile payphone was on the first floor like me, but on the opposite side of the building in the corner. I walked down and over and made the call, hoping. Iwa's phone rang three times before her voicemail kicked in. Immediately, I hung up. (sighs) I took a deep breath. I sat there for a moment. Six minutes later, I picked up the phone once more, prepared to leave another message. After all, this was the only telephone number for my wife that I had. Ikeda-san, Ohio Kosamesu, Boko wa mayonaka desu I'm calling to speak to Akimi. I was hoping to arrange a conversation with her. She left your number as her friend and the person to contact. Thank you for your help. I'll call back later today. If I don't reach you, I'll keep trying. Hopefully, we won't be disconnected at that time. After I hung up, I just sat there. I was debating in my mind whether I should have left Iwa Ikeda my telephone number here at Shinjuku Uchi. I already knew that even if I were not in at the same time that she might return my call, the front desk receptionist would take messages for me and place them in the tiny mailboxes up front reserved for paying guests. But maybe calling back to leave a number would backfire on me. I had already begun to distrust Iwa's motives. I got up and walked back down the hall and over toward my room, regulating my anger. Anger was not the correct posture for Muslims fasting during the Ramadan holy holiday. When I slid my room door open, Chiasa was sitting on my bed with her shoes off and feet propped up. Her unpolished, clean, clear toes were unblemished. She pressed them into my sheet. Situated below her feet on the floor were Akimi's high heels. I saw that she had removed them from my desk where I kept them last night. Nice shoes, she said, half smiling, noticing my eyes frozen on the floor. What are you doing in my room? I asked her before getting tight. called me, she said casually without even a grin. No, I said, treating her statement as a question even though it wasn't. You did. She smiled and sat up straight. Now her feet were dangling above Akimi's shoes. I could see Akimi's diary lying beside her on my bed. She had removed that also from my desk. Hand me that, I told her. Referring to Akimi's diary, she handed it over. I received a telepathic communication from you, she said with a straight, no-nonsense look. I didn't respond, just looked at her, hard. My face must have triggered something. Suddenly, she seemed insulted by it. Honestly, if you say that you didn't say my name once in your mind since you said goodbye to me at the airport, if you didn't think about me at all or see me in your dreams, I'll leave you right now and you'll never see me again. Her soft voice had no humor mixed in it. She spoke sweetly, but with confidence. She was challenging me now and revealing that she had a slight mean streak running through her. Did you? She followed up her gray eyes searching mine. Did you think about Chiasa 
her long lashes affected me. I did, but I was going to let her know it was not how she seemed to be thinking about it. But she interrupted me. You see, you did. I knew it, she said, turning as though she was talking to someone standing beside her. Then she threw her hands up in a gesture that normally meant touchdown and fell backward back onto my bed. I received your message right here, she said, with one index finger pointed at her head. So I came. Chiasa, I said. I'm only out here for a few days and I have a lot to take care of before I leave. I don't have the extra time to play games. This is business. Let me cut your time in half. Let me help you, she pleaded with one hand on her hip. I speak the language. You don't. I know the train system. You don't. I can connect you with anything that you need in Tokyo. And if you turn down my business offer, I'll go tell my boss that I am back home from the States and start delivering pizzas. Honestly speaking, I'd rather work for you. Japan is a no-tip country, her tone softened. What? I asked. In Japan, no one expects a tip for anything they do. If you take a taxi or if a bellman carries your luggage or if you receive a food delivery, no matter how hard a worker works or how good a job someone does, we don't require or accept one penny over the actual price. So whether I deliver two pizzas or 22 pizzas, it's all the same. If I work for you, there's no hourly rate. I name the price, and you pay it. I'll do whatever it takes to get the job you want done, completed. She was wearing a Le Coq Sportif peach-colored sweatsuit and orange converse with orange laces. Her sweat jacket was off and lying across my bed. The honey-colored skin of her shoulders and arms glistened. She was wearing a thin, tight tee, yet her full breasts were not exposed, nor was her belly button but her curves were killer. She shifted from lying down to lying sideways. Her head was now resting in the palm of her left hand. She seemed eager for an answer, but at the same time she was perched lightly like a bird that could take flight in a quarter of a second and disappear into the endless sky. No woman besides Uma or my wife had ever sat on my bed, yet I had just met this girl yesterday and not even 24 hours ago, and she looked very comfortable. She was very helpful and unique and pretty, but I was here in Japan for only one reason, and that reason definitely wasn't going to change. I took a deep breath and thought to myself, here I go again. If I could remove whatever type of magnet I had in my body that drew these women to me and kept them coming continuously, I would be faced with less of a challenge. I would be able to focus. I'm checking out of here, I told her. Why, she asked. This place has no lock on the bedroom doors. When I come and go, my luggage isn't secure. You walked right in here, so you know what I'm talking about. You don't need to leave here, she said casually. We Japanese don't steal. I let off half a laugh. Nobody Japanese deals, I repeated to let her hear how ridiculous she sounded to me. Seriously, 
I know. I grew up on an American military base. All kinds of stuff got stolen all the time. Eventually, they even had to install cameras in certain areas. But outside of the base, on Japanese territory, no one Japanese steals. I can leave my bicycle or motorcycle or anything, no matter the value. No one Japanese will take it. I promise you, it's the Japanese way. I thought you said that you grew up in Tokyo. I checked her. I did. My mom lives here in Tokyo, and she and my dad had a house on the Yokota Air Base, about 45 minutes from here. Even though the American military bases are located here in Japan, inside the base is considered to be America. So, I grew up both ways. That's why I can speak both languages fluently. No problem. So, are there a lot of Americans living here? I asked. Not really. The American military personnel and their families never leave the base except when traveling to the airport, coming and going. They have their own little world going on in there. Plus, everything that they think they need. But when we lived there, I left the base every day. Besides, my Japanese family lives in the real Japan. I reached into my pocket and pulled out a small stack of bills. I counted out 30,000 yen and handed it over to her. She took it easily as though she had expected her pitch to work all along. Immediately, she handed me 1,000 back. She was giving me my change and at the same time proving both of her points. No stealing, no tips. She bowed down completely and eased up, singing, Arigato gozaimasu. I understood that it was her culture to do so, but I said to her, don't do that anymore. She looked at me curiously. You can do it, just don't do it to me, I corrected myself. Wakarimashita, she said, meaning she understood, but I knew she didn't. A woman bowing before me is erotic. When my wife does it, it gets me crazy, but I didn't want each female I met out here doing it to me. I needed help keeping everything in perspective. Get me a Tokyo phone book from the front desk. They should have one, right? Business or personal, she asked swiftly. Personal, I responded after a pause. She was up and out. Not even three minutes passed before she showed up with a massive book in her hand. 27 million people in Tokyo. Who do you want to look up? She was ready. Iwa Ikeda, I told her. She sat on my bed and opened it up. She moved her fingers across the pages, swiftly scanning the extra small sized kanji. I counted about four pages of people last name Ikeda. That's about 400 families. But there's no Iwa. Maybe she's listed under her husband or father's name. That would be normal. Do you know it? She lifted her eyes from the pages to peer at me curiously. Nah, but I have her phone number, I answered. What? She followed up. I'm looking for her address. I already have her phone number, I explained. Chiasa stood, staring, she said. So why not call her and ask her where she lives? I pulled Iwa's phone number from my back pocket and handed it over. Chiasa sat back down and tried to match the phone number to one of the numbers listed in the book. If it matched, she would discover the address printed beside it. I liked that she had a quick mind. Her number is not listed. 
Her family probably has money, she said nonchalantly. Those are the types that would pay extra to keep their information out of the phone book. It's not usual, though. Do you want a kidnapper? She asked, too casually. That costs extra, she smiled slightly. Nah, I don't kidnap. If a woman doesn't belong to me, I don't touch her, I assured. What What next? Jinza, I told her. I gotta get to Jinza to check something out. You know, Jinza is high-end. Whatever you're buying from there, I can take you somewhere else to get it, or something close to it, for much, much less. Nah, I'm not going shopping. I pulled the address out of my pocket and handed it to her. She held it with both hands and studied it like it was a riddle. She handed the paper back to me and said casually, That's easy. I gotta move up out of here first. I gotta move my luggage to a place where I can lock it up, I told her as I began repacking the few items that I had left out of my duffel. I see. You don't trust anyone, she said. My Aunt Tasha says that a person who cannot trust anyone always ends up trusting the wrong people. I thought about her statement. It seemed like a tricky phrase that someone who wanted to be trusted made up for their own advantage. I moved it out of my mind and finished packing. Do you have a camera? She asked out of the blue. Why? Because what type of tourist wouldn't have a camera, she asked. I don't need it for now. Bring it. It's better to have something useful than to not have it, she smiled. I pulled the movie camera out of my bag. I paused for a second, then looked at Bachiasa and thought, this female is a sharp one. She had probably searched my bag already when she was in my room uninvited and alone. She asked me if I had a camera, but I was guessing that she already knew the answer and was on to the next stage of her plan, whatever that was. But I had too much on my mind to try and figure her out. In one hour, she had been more useful than anyone or anything else. As we left the room, I noticed Chiasa's jacket laying on my bed. You forgot your jacket, I told her after forcing her to understand that she could not carry even one of my bags. She answered, I'm leaving my jacket here. Why? I'm not coming back here, I told her. I just want to show you something, she said. You'll see. We walked out, leaving her jacket behind. She returned the phone book to the front desk as we exited. Outside the hostel and into the warmth, I saw her put something small on top of the cement post beside the hostel door. I looked up into a white sky and crimson sun. I know... Our sun is really bright, right? She asked. I didn't answer her, though my eyes were squinted enough for her to already know what I thought. Here in Tokyo, the sun rises real early, but it also sets real early. But I don't live my life by the sun. I'll move around in the daylight or in the moonlight. Just the same, Chiasa said with ease. She took some steps out into the street and flagged down a taxi. Don't touch the door, she said suddenly, and the taxi door opened automatically. She leaned in and spoke Japanese to the driver. The trunk opened automatically. I put my luggage inside and shut it. I jumped in the back beside her. We were off. Enjoy the ride, she said to me while looking out the window in the opposite direction. 
This is the only time that we will take a taxi. It's too expensive. But since you had to have your luggage, Shinjuku in the early morning daylight was like a fascinating amusement park with its one million still and blinking and blaring lights turned off and its best rides shut down. Now, it was just a place where hundreds of people were walking and riding through just as, just as a means to get somewhere else. Now, it was just a place where hundreds of people were walking and riding through just as a means to get somewhere else. When the wheels of the cleanest, most well-kept taxi that I had ever rode in turned off the main road, Shinjuku easily seemed like a suburb or a village. I saw a Japanese mother of three riding a bicycle with a baby seat in the front and another two seats behind her holding two happy, silent babies chilling. I saw other Japanese women dressed in business skirt suits and moderate heeled shoes and stockings, carrying pocketbooks, purses, or briefcases in their baskets, watching and weaving through traffic while holding a compact mirror and applying lipstick at the same time. We pulled up steep hills and coasted down the slopes of narrow streets and hugged curbs around corners. My eyes were like hungry beasts scanning it all, leery of missing one alley or alcove or outstanding piece of architecture. Everything was so completely new that I neglected using the map I had in my back pocket, not wanting to overlook the real thing while checking for printed data on the paper. I can't lie. It was a busy yet strangely peaceful place. The men in suits moved in packs, all seeming neither happy nor sad to be headed to work. Laboring men wore stylish jumpsuits, all baggy, nothing tight, and quality work boots. Teens traveled in troops, all moving slowly in identical uniforms, boys separate from the girls. Motorcycle riders eased by with little effort in the continuous flow of light traffic. People pimping pamphlets and coupons were setting up their distribution and promotion schemes, offering every walker an invitation to spend money at some place of business. Thin girls glided up hills without huffing or puffing. They remained seated and unstressed, pedaling in an unbroken rhythm on their bikes the same as if they were on flat land. Old people were energetic and agile, not swollen like sausages or withered like raisins or defeated with diabetes or crippled by arthritis. Their clothes fit and matched, were clean and pressed. Any newcomer could tell that someone somewhere loved the seniors enough to help them maintain. I looked away once to check on Chiasa. She was facing front and sitting quietly. I liked that she was comfortable with silence. I liked that she was smart enough to let me become familiar with my surroundings, uninterrupted. We soon reached a wooded area that was blocked off by a long, heavy chain held up by two metal poles. Chiasa and the driver spoke some in their language. The driver swerved and entered what seemed to be a restricted area that led us into a paradise-like park with trees of every size and height and flowers of every color blossoming and spilling out to the service roads. Where are we? I questioned her. Home, Chiasa said calmly. I checked the meter and paid the driver. 
laying the bills in a rectangular dish that he tapped lightly. There was no bulletproof glass to protect him from me or from being choked or murdered by angry passengers. No little metal slot to drop the money in that you couldn't snatch back. No divider between the civilized and the suspicious and dangerous public customers like there is in Brooklyn, New York. Wearing his spotless white gloves, he picked up the dish and laid my change back in it with my receipt. Arigato gozaimasu, he said to me and Giasa both. My door and the trunk opened simultaneously, automatically. Whose home is this, I asked. My grandfather's. I mentioned him to you. Actually, he's a retired park ranger. This is Yoyogi Park, following the stone path. Follow the stone path. I followed her. Why are we here, I asked her. You need someplace secure to leave your luggage. That's what you said. That's why we're here. Hold up. You can just take me to a new hostel. I have a list of them in the area. But you already paid for two nights stay at Shinjuku Uchi, she answered. How would you know, I asked, a swift reaction. I talked to Junsan when I arrived at your place this morning. He was working the front desk. I'm not slow, I told myself, but she is speeding. I knew I had to shake off whatever kind of fog my mind was in and watch her moves closely. Like my sensei would say, you have to make your mind light. If the mind is too heavy, you've lost your use of intuition and instinct, which every fighter needs. She led us up to a house and then walked past it. We were entering what I assumed was their yard, but actually the whole park just appeared to be their yard because hers was the only house in the area. I thought about her grandfather, the park ranger. Where was he? Does a park ranger carry a gun? I asked myself. What about your grandfather? He's not home. How do you know? I followed up. Because his bike isn't out front. He's gone somewhere. How were you going to introduce me to him when you don't even know my name? I asked her. And she stopped walking, her back to me. She turned around with a calm and blank face. I know your name. I told you, I was not asleep on the plane. But you told your name to Yuka first. I don't like her, and I refuse to use anything after she has already used it. Chiasa folded her arms in front of her. I decided to call you something different, but I have only narrowed it down to three choices so far. I'm still deciding, she said, as though she could assign me a name. I had to smile naturally. You think you can give me a name? You think it's that easy? Since you gave Yuka your fake name and gave a different name to the Shinjuku hostel, I figured it was that easy. She stared back at me. I marked the date and location down in my mind the first time I ever, I have ever been checked by a girl. She turned back around and continued to walk toward two sheds, one made of metal, the other made of brick. She slid her hand into her left front pocket and pulled out some keys. She unlocked a heavy padlock on the brick shed and gently opened it up. You can put your luggage in here. This is my storage and the other is my grandfather's, she said. I paused. And since you don't trust anyone, I know that includes me. So, after you put your things inside, I'll give you the key until you take your stuff back out. She was dangling the keys between two pretty fingers 
with clear, unpolished nails. I stepped into her brick shed. She reached her arm past me and flipped on the switch. Now her shed had lights. I was inside as she stood outside, so confident in what she was doing that her back was to me. It was a fort of ammunitions. There was a large gun lying against the wall, but I wasn't familiar with the brand. Then my mind skipped ahead. She wanted me to see all this for a reason, I told myself. Chiasa, I called her. She turned and faced me. I pointed out the gun with no words or hands, only my eyes. Just a tranquilizer gun. You know in Japan we have some wildlife. Seriously, we have bears, she said with a half a smile. I got it from my grandfather. I borrowed it, she said casually. Yeah, I acknowledged. What about that? I saw you with that at the airport, I pointed. It's a Kayudo bow. She turned toward me and stepped in and blocked the only entrance to the shed. Kayudo, I asked. You know, like bows and arrows kind of thing. She positioned her arms and hands as though she were aiming and shooting one. However, the bow in her shed was the largest I had ever seen. She stepped up and unzipped the case, revealing the dynamic weapon. As quickly as she showed it, she zipped it back up. I put my duffel bag up against the wall, right below some handcuffs that hung on a nail and across from some old nunchucks, also lodged on the wall. Besides several stacked storage boxes were a few pairs of mountain boots of different styles. On a nail were some rain ponchos. On the floor was about 30 feet of coiled, colorful climbing rope. In addition to a well-used, industrial-sized flashlight, there was a megaphone. When I saw some walkie-talkies, I stepped closer to them. We can use them, she said excitedly. The rest of the items Chiasa had in there were all inside cases. There were three long cases made of a thick blue cloth with wicked white kanji painted on. There was only a flap and blue string tying down the tips of the cloth cases. My swords, Chiasa said, old ones. I looked at my watch and saw that it was 10.15 a.m. Let's go, I told her, stepping forward so that she would step out. I pulled the door closed, noticing that it swung out and in like an American door instead of sliding sideways. I padlocked it and dropped the key into my pocket. My father built that for me. My grandfather's metal shed was always here, but when I came here to stay with him, my father built this one. She was speaking softly, more like she was talking to herself or moving with a memory. I remained silent, deciding right then and there that she was the first gift of Ramadan on the first day of the fast. She was my sentinel, which Sensei said every ninja on a mission should have. When we reached the front of her house, she said, Chatomate. She bent down and removed her kicks and placed them together on the corner of the step. She entered her house, leaving me standing outside. I liked that she didn't ask me inside while her grandfather was not home, but I didn't like her clothing change. Chiasa emerged wearing a dark blue miniskirt, a light blue blouse and socks, and carrying penny loafers. Why the change? I asked. Everybody knows that a girl in a school uniform can get anything she wants in Japan. So, you should just look at this as my costume. You'll see, she said without flirtation. As she kneeled to put on her shoes, I felt uneasy. 
She had a book bag, the strap resting on one shoulder and pressing across her breast and down to her opposite hip where the bag rode. She had a second strap crisscrossing the same way. She pulled it off and over her head and handed it to me. She opened her book bag and pulled out a box. Welcome to Japan, she said, handing me the items. The army green canteen was filled with liquid. I opened the box. It was filled with perfectly sliced and neatly arranged fruits. You must be hungry. You didn't eat, she said, smiling. Thank you, Chiasa. I should have told you. While I am here visiting Japan, I'll be fasting during the day from sunup to sunset, I confided. For the whole week, she asked, incredulous. For the whole month, I said solemnly. Why, she asked. I'm a Muslim. This is a holy month for us, I said. She stood silent. Her gray eyes widened some, and one of her eyebrows lifted. She paused, thinking. That's so fucking cool, she said softly to herself. I like that. Then I won't eat either. We'll both eat together at sunset. After switching train cars and going three stops, we arrived at Jinza. We walked a while through well-constructed, clean, and well-lit underground tunnels. The tunnels were so dope to me. It was clever to be moving underground beneath the city. They stretched a distance and were not hot, stinky, crowded holes in the earth like the subway system of New York where the rats raced. We reached a steep sequence of stairs, leading us up and out into what had to be the heart of Jinza. From Shinjuku to Yoyogi to Jinza, there was a quality leap. I swiftly noted, the other two prefectures were definitely not low quality, but Jinza was obviously high quality, like Fifth Avenue in New York or 57th Street, but better, cleaner, and more attractive and elegant. I could see that the top designers of the world had their flagship stores located here. This place was about big business and buildings and billboards, as multinational corporations squared off to see which one could post its name and logos up the highest with dominating widths. Widths. In between the corporate wars were unique Japanese boutiques and tailors and haberdashers and upscale restaurants and bakeries and art stores and timepiece workshops and retailers and acupuncture lofts and therapeutic massage spas and ice creameries and yogurt dens. I got drawn in by an astronomy shop with impressive telescopes and powerful lenses. I had never owned one, but the design of the shop and display of the unusual equipment caught my eye. It was an awesome concept and invention, a lens that brought beautiful shining stars close to the eye of the human holding the piece of equipment. Every single car on the street seemed brand new. The few that weren't were so well cleaned and polished and free from dents and blemishes that they blended in. In Jinza, there wasn't only a handful of hustlers riding large like back in Brooklyn. The whole prefecture of Jinza was bubbling with limousines, Crown Victorias, Benzes, Rolls Royces, Maseratis, and Lamborghinis. The streets were wide and clean and free of potholes. The traffic was at a bare minimum, and the flow of people was orderly but steady. Men wore suits, tweed jackets, linen, 
spring suede and comfortable cottons. Some rocked ascots, Gucci, Louis Vuitton, and E. Saint Laurent belts and briefcases, designer ties or expensive traditional silk robes and slippers. Business shirts were crisp and ironed. The absence or presence of cufflinks and of course the quality of the silver, gold, and platinum ranked them one from the other. Not one shoe was run over or cheap, from the workers to the execs. Women were almost unanimously dressed in expensive, well-tailored cloths, clothes of every style from both the European and Asian continents. There were fine silks and lace and cotton and linens, and even their denim was threaded better, threaded better, cut better, styled better, the material a deeper blue and more durable looking. As we walked further, my eyes cast down only to be introduced to a high-heeled heaven. Every feminine shoe seemed an expression of personality and poise and even preference. Each lady in front of me and moving past me was petite. Here in Tokyo, fashion, model slim, was not relevant. In Jinza, Every female of every age was slim and sleek and flowing with a unique style of her own that made it difficult to determine a trend. It wasn't long before I realized that I had not seen any white people, Americans or Europeans. I'm not saying that there were none here, but I didn't see them. So many people in each face clearly Japanese, whether I glanced at the workers in the stores the people in the streets, the executives moving about, the money earners, money spenders, the owners, buyers or sellers, the limo drivers or limo passengers or even the window cleaners. They were all uniformly Japanese. This was Japan and everything I saw confirmed that this was clearly their country. This whole area is Nakamura Plaza, Chiasa said as she stopped walking and gestured. The building with the exact address that you're looking for is there, across the street, she pointed. And the guy whose name you had on the paper, Naoko Nakamura, he should be there on the top floor. She had her finger pointed toward the sky. Let's go, she said confidently. Hold up, I told her. As I stood stiff, she said, The paper you showed me said Naoko Nakamura. And this is Nakamura Plaza, and over there is the Nakamura building. Usually here in Japan, the most important people have their offices located on the top floor of an office building or in a penthouse or co-op or condo. Isn't it the same in New York? She asked innocently. I didn't answer. Was no longer focused on her or her voice. Looking up toward what I counted as the 33rd and top floor and then beyond into the white cloudless sky, I inhaled and wished that I was fighting this fight using my father's mind instead of my own. I needed to be backed up by my father's empire and assets. I needed my father's ingenuity and access to the world. <sighs> I exhaled, my mouth drying some from the start of the fast. What would be my next move? What would my father do in this scenario that I was facing? What would my father advise me to do now? I felt like the black king on the chessboard with no front line of defense, no pawns and no sideline defense, no bishops, no rooks, no knights. Meanwhile, Naoko was chilling, the white king piece, although his queen was dead, his wife, who was also Akimi's mother, his knights, 
bishops and rooks and a billion pawns in his multi-million dollar establishment were still securing him and assuring that he appeared monumental with an untouchable monopoly over my wife and his empire. What's the plan? Chiasa asked cautiously. I turned my head in the opposite direction from where she was standing only to see a pack of teens and what I assumed was their chaperone gathered on the same side of the Nakamoto building. An idea was forming. Do you know how to work the camera? I asked her. I will in 30 seconds, she answered. I handed it to her. She studied. Okay, I got it, she said softly. Let's go make a movie. You be the director. I'll shoot whatever you want me to shoot, she smiled. Follow them in, I said, using my head nod to point her eyes in the direction of the schoolgirls. But we're wearing different school uniforms, she protested immediately. I didn't say join them. Just follow them in. See if they're getting any kind of tour of the building. See if they give them any private information. If they do, you get it also. Use the camera to film the inside of the lobby and everything that is going on. But what are you looking for, she asked. I need a printout of the building directory, like the staff list. I need you to get in the parking deck. You can read the signs, act like you're lost, find the executive parking and film the cars and plates of the executive vehicles. You're not going to do anything crazy, are you? Or illegal, she asked defiantly. Before I could answer, she added, because if you are, my fee has to be raised to the 10th power. She smiled, but I knew she wasn't joking. She seemed to want to let me know in some subtle way that she was down for whatever as long as she was dealt with fairly and paid her asking price. She didn't have to worry. I would treat her right, naturally. Besides, I would not forget about her father. I didn't need two madmen trying to destroy me at the same time. Nothing crazy, nothing illegal. I'm just collecting information. I'm just looking for something, I told her solemnly. Are we looking for the girl whose little feet fit in those hundred thousand yen heels? She asked, straight-faced. I didn't answer. That gotta be it, she said coyly. Don't worry, I'll get it done. She left with the camera in hand and the power button on and the red record light all lit up. As I stood thinking in the midst of the moving crowds, I believed I heard my father's response to my frustrated call for guidance. The volume of the comings and goings of Jinza dropped down. I could only hear him. My father said to me, Naoko Nakamura is an Asian elephant known for his wisdom and intelligence. He's too large to confront or directly charge into. He is mammoth. He's someone you've got to go around. Stay out of his area or you'll set off a stampede. Lay low in the tall grass. Give him the day. You take the night. And his voice left as swiftly as it arrived. So it was decided. I would not enter Naoko Nakamura's building to demand to meet with him and ask, where is my wife? Or enter into any diplomatic display of etiquette and approval as my Uma had suggested. My eyes followed the skyline. 
Having turned 360 degrees twice, I selected a suitable target building and began walking. At the astronomy boutique, I copped a powerful pair of waterproof, fogproof, shockproof Nikon binoculars for $250. When I got to my target, I eased on my sunglasses and entered like I belonged there. Confident, I strode in like a paying customer. Perched on the 32nd floor of a building adjacent to Naoko Nakamura's, I adjusted the button that put the powerful binocular lenses into focus. Although the windows of the Nakamura building, the top executive floors were covered by expensive wooden vertical blinds, preventing me from seeing in, I could see through all the other windows. I looked into his place, brought so close into my view that it cast the illusion that I could just extend my arm and touch it. I learned very little. The Nakamura building was just that, a well-built tower of expensive offices and well-dressed employees. Sprinkled in between were high-end restaurants, tea rooms, and lounges. Every now and then the lens would capture suited smokers gathered in a specific area or workers conferencing at the water cooler. I peeped also what seemed like a company gym stretched out over an entire floor with all kinds of equipment and equipment and in steady use. There was one place packed with pets and another floor with loads of little children and their chaperones or teachers. No one was using the staircases. I assumed their elevators were in full rotation, but I could not see those. The parking decks were on the lowest floor. I could view tops of cars, but cement walls shielded the car bodies. I saw some medical offices and thought to myself, here is a man who seems to have thought of everything, a veteran of years of thought battles. My mind began to race as I tried to determine what exact advantages I might have. Akimi's father was my opposite, it seemed. He was high profile like an elephant that stands 13 feet tall and weighs 8,000 pounds. I told myself, he can avoid being seen. His every moment shakes the earth. He's so high profile, in fact, that he must be discussed and written about in Tokyo and throughout Japan all the time. Whatever business or events where he would appear must be reported, I figured. And further, if I could locate him at a specific place and time at a public event. Perhaps my wife would be there also. I had to maneuver to use his high visibility against him, I concluded. I left the hotel where I was posted as soon as I caught Chiasa in my lens outside the Nakamoto building, shooting footage of a gang of school kids, most of them holding two fingers up to form a peace sign. She looked happy and excited, magnified. She looked happy and excited, magnified in my lens. She was real comfortable giving them directions about how and where to stand. She even convinced a girl to climb on top of a statue. It's done, she assured me, but we'll have to go to my house to watch the footage. That's the only way you can play the tape. And I got these. She handed me a short stack of flyers, papers, and newsletters, as well as a map. Put them in your bag and hold them for me. We gotta get to Rapongi Hills, I told her. Rapongi Hills, she repeated. Expensive taste, she murmured. 
I pulled out the second Tokyo address I had, I had for Naoko Nakamura. I was hoping it didn't end up being a business complex like this one. I was still hoping to discover my wife there. As we moved through the streets of Jinza, Chiasa pointed out things in English and then told me the Japanese word for those things. She began with the binoculars. Sukankyu, she said. Sky, sora, tree, he, car, kruma, bus, basu, man, toku, woman, josi, student, gakosai, store, mise, book, han, window, mado, building, biru, motorcycle, baiku, police, kaisatsu, when she said a word that I had already learned from flipping through my study cards, I would call it out before she could translate it. The little word game was helping my language lessons to stick. When we both saw a kid drinking bottled water, Chiasa smiled and we both said, Mitsu. Chiasa crossed both her forearms into an X to show me that she remembered that there's no drinking anything until sunset. On the amazingly clean train, with the carpeted cushions, I viewed the digital commercials and professional postings, but was unable to decipher exactly what the hell was going on. I stood, challenging myself to try and figure out what product was actually being promoted through the Japanese ads. Chiasa broke my focus. Is she looking for you? Or is it only you looking for her? Chiasa asked as she sat and I stood over her on the train. Her questions were spoken slowly and softly, as though she was formulating the words at the same time the thoughts occurred in her mind. I knew for sure that she was piecing things together with each speck of information. I told her, or she observed. I liked that better than telling her my whole story up front. Is she an older lady or is she a teenager like us? She continued. What does she look like? I mean... Is there anything special about her or something that stands out, like a scar or a mole or something? Do you have a photo of her? It doesn't matter if she is looking for me because I'm looking for her, I answered automatically. When she sees me, all her feelings will be revealed. I believe this and was waiting anxiously for Akimi's live expressions. She's 16, same as you. She's five feet nine inches in her hundred thousand yen heels and five four when she takes them off. Her skin is flawless. She has no scars. She has a beauty mark on the inside of her right thigh, I recalled and smiled. Her soul is mysterious. Her spirit is sweet. Her smile is like sunshine, I said aloud. But as I spoke, I was also thinking to myself, reminding myself of Akimi. Chiasa sat silently for the remaining ride. In my silence, I wondered, is Akimi looking for me? Of course she is. That's why she called each day for seven days, my apartment, the dojo, my sensei. Does she know that I'm here in Tokyo? Would she believe that I would come to her home country? Did Iwa Ikeda let her know? Akimi, I need you to leave me some clues, little traces of yourself, I thought. And I will leave you some clues also, something to shake your heart and let you know your man is here. 
Rapungi is like Washington DC, Giasa said as we stepped from underground. There are a lot of embassies here, like the Chinese embassy, the American embassy, and the Dutch embassy. And as you can see when you look around, here is where you will see a lot of people from different countries. Foreigners like Rapungi because of the nightclubs, hostess bars, and the girls. How would you know that? I asked her seriously. I had a friend who came here and got rich working as a hostess club. At a hostess club. She needed a certain amount of money, so she said she was going to work as a hostess for two months. But then she liked the money so much, she never came back to school. She even missed her exams and her graduation. Sounds like it paid much more than delivering pizzas, I said without thinking. Chiasa stopped walking. You and I are scheduled to fight tonight. I'll get you back for that comment. You know that wasn't right. She corrected me, softly yet sternly, with no jokes in it. You're right. My bad. I take it back. I was completely wrong, I said sincerely. Hostess bar work does pay more. But a girl has to dress in a nightgown or like a long, flowing, phony dress. And she has to drink liquor all night long, even after she's already drunk. And she has to flirt with the customer so that he will stay in the nightclub and keep ordering more drinks. If I would have worked with my friend, I would have earned my whole tuition for flight school in less than a month. But I don't drink liquor. I don't smoke. And I can't flirt with a guy that I don't really like. I'd rather fight him, she said, caught up in her mounting emotion. Like how you want to fight me? I asked. She smiled, embarrassed for the first time. She paused and answered softly. I don't want to fight you because I don't like you. That's not my reason. I didn't follow up and ask her why she did want to fight me. Besides, if I were a hostess, my father would kill him. Kill who? The customer. Any one of them, or maybe even all of them. He would find him and kill him kill the owner of the club, blow the club up, and if I did something like that, he would probably kill me too, she said it calm and matter of fact. He made me promise to tell him before I give my virginity away. My father said the right man has to be strong enough to stand in front of him and explain why he wants permission to be with his daughter. If the one I choose can't face my father, then I'll have to walk away from him completely. She gestured with her right hand, waving it across her neck to show me that a coward had no chance of winning her. Chiasa was becoming more than a feminine outline in my eyes view. She was like a drawing that was just beginning to be filled in with shades and colors. I respected her this minute more than five minutes ago. No smoking, no drinking, no fake flirt, 16 and still a virgin. In her father's absence, she was maintaining his rules and conditions for her living. In my father's absence, I was trying to do the same. We walked and climbed the several steps to Rapongi Hills under the beam of the sun until we reached the top. Need water? I asked Chiasa. Her breasts were rising and falling faster than regular breathing. I don't if you don't, she said. Once we get to the top of that winding staircase over there, We'll arrive at your address, but I think you should decide now. If you want me to walk through and film the location like in Jinza, 
or whether you want to actually go over there and inside. Or maybe you want us to go in together. I can speak in Japanese for you if you have something to say or ask. I didn't answer right away. I was thinking, this girl who you're looking for, she must speak English, right? Otherwise, how would you even know her? She questioned. I'll wait here. You walk through the whole block. Make sure you capture everything. The address, the place to the left of it, and to the right, and in front and behind. Even any cars parked over there. Get it all on film, I directed her. Easy, she said as we approached the stairs. I got this now. I made the prayer on the winding staircase of wide, clean cement. There was a peace and stillness in Rapongi Hills, which seemed to be the resi- residential extension of Rapongi. Here, everything was blossoming or had already blossomed. The mansions were sturdy and well built. People here seemed to spend more money on expensive designer doors, security walls, and iron fences than on the land itself. Each property was high quality but condensed. I couldn't see from the outside looking in any pools or huge courtyards, backyards, or play areas. They were showcasing amazing nature more than anything else. Orchids and pansies and roses and exotic plants and flowers down to designer bushes and rock gardens. All of the trees were magnificent expressions of Allah. I could see that luxury vehicles were routine here and every one of them glistened as though they were washed polished and buffed as many times a day as I made prayers. Strolling, I came up on a merchant alley modeled with miniature stores and short doorways. Quietly, people walked in and out, purchasing an array of items. I imagined that these people were house servants, maids and cooks, or drivers sent here and there to make purchases for their wealthy employers. In the Sudan, when I was young, our servants were sent to market daily, Uma always made sure they bought the best and freshest from the butcher, halal, of course. After a few months of living in the United States, I could detect any dish prepared with old meats. The taste of the fresh kill was completely different than meats that had sat out, then been frozen, then defrosted and frozen over again, which were the way most Americans seemed to be accustomed to handling and consuming their flesh. In a tiny market, I purchased peanut butter ground from peanuts right in my presence. As I waited, also a few bananas and oranges. I had not seen any halal restaurants yet, and these were items I could trust, just in case I had nothing for breaking the fast at sunset. I already knew that I would not allow Chiasa to prepare my meal tonight. She hadn't offered to, but I could see there was a possibility that she might. I didn't want to eat from her hand. Uma would say, food from a woman's hand to a man's mouth makes the two of them familiar. I wanted my wife to serve me. Until that was possible, and while out here in Japan, I would be fed by strangers at selected restaurants, or I would shop at food markets and feed myself. Eating around the corner, I caught sight of a lone easing around the corner. I caught sight of a lone building on a short hill that towered over all the other residences. I took the short walk up. When I arrived in front, I entered the building behind a young boy with a bike. 
His hand was shaking as he tried to hold on to his bicycle while opening the locked door. His bike fell, but he got the lock opened. He held the door open with his foot and leaned over to lift his bike. He then tried to balance himself and push his bike through as he walked. He looked up at me when he felt the weight of the door he was holding disappear. He bowed his head slightly to thank me and pushed his bike in smoothly down a short corridor and further down a short ramp. The elevator arrived. I got on. On the top floor, I walked off, found the stairwell, and climbed a few steps to the roof. A workman was on his break up there, hiding out and smoking a cigarette. I acknowledged him with a nod and acted calm and cool like I lived there. I looked out over Rapungi Hills, first with my eyes and then with my binoculars. Binoculars. I pulled out my map and my compass and tried to pinpoint the location of the Nakamura address. As Chiasa had mentioned, it was difficult to decipher. I could easily locate the name of the street, but the numbers of the houses and buildings did not go in order the way they would have in New York. Instead, the numbers were random based on when the structure was built, which I thought was crazy. Or maybe it wasn't crazy. Maybe it was just the Japanese method of disguising things or making them so complicated that only they could understand. It definitely helped them to lock to lock outsiders out, and I couldn't be mad at that. My lens was focused now on the right street, which house, I had no idea. I was glad that it was a house and not a building or a complex. I took my time and looked at each property one by one. The chain smoker smoked his cigarettes slowly. I counted. He was inhaling his twelfth one. His face had the stain of sleeplessness and worry. He didn't say nothing. Neither did I. When he left, I left. I ducked into the smallest hardware store I had ever seen. It was shaped like the letter U. One aisle only that bent once and led you down to the cashier and out the exit. San bags domo, I said to the only visible staffer. Three bags, please. I wrapped up my purchases securely so inquisitive Chiasa could not see through and discover some more pieces of the puzzle. She was already doing enough piecing together without my permission. At a payphone, tucked beneath the canopy of a florist shop, I phoned Iwa Ikeda to check in. Unlike yesterday, my heart was no longer filled with anticipation that she would pick up or even convey my message to Akimi. And still I tried. My wife must have trusted her for some sensible reason. Yet, after pressing the digits, I ended up with absolutely nothing. As I held the receiver, I had a stupid thought. What was the reason to open a florist shop in the middle of a small village packed with flowers, plants, and trees growing naturally? Any problems? I asked Giasa when she returned to the winding stairs. None, she said confidently. There were some people passing by. I asked a couple of them if they wanted to be in my movie. It's interesting how the camera makes strangers become so friendly and talkative, and it's almost like they'll do anything that the person holding the camera suggests. I gotta check into a different hostel, I said, pulling out my list. Chiasa stepped in and looked at the list. Here, this one is in Harajuku. It's very close to my house, she said, with a bit of excitement. Okay, let's go take a look, I told her. I hope they have locks on everything so you'll be glad to stay there, she smiled as we walked more swiftly. I had already told this girl, Chiasa, that I was only here for a week. 
How could she get so excited at me staying close to her house for one night? She didn't know that if nothing here in Tokyo worked out, and if I couldn't find a Kimi here, I would leave for Kyoto early tomorrow. I checked my watch. It was going on 3 p.m.